Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's my privilege to get to open up God's Word together with you this morning. So if you would, please grab your copy of God's Word and open to Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. Uh, If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, that's on page 871. 871. And if you happen to be using my Bible, it's on page 1765. Well, we're already about six weeks into our Acts sermon series, and a couple of weeks ago, um, Pastor Doug mentioned that it's time to start putting some meat on the bones of this reality of abiding in Christ and what it means to uh, be a people to the world. Um, And so with that, out, out of that, we saw a people strengthened out of Acts 15, and then building on that last Sunday... Pastor Nate showed us in Acts 16, a spirit-led, spirit-empowered people advancing for the gospel. But this raises a question, or at least it should raise a question in our minds. Um, This question is is how. How do a spirit-led, spirit-empowered people advance the gospel? What does that even look like? And these kinds of questions quickly lead into uh, conversations about methodology, methodology. Uh, What's the method for advancing the gospel? Uh, Let me just mention some common methods in which people today advance the gospel. Uh, First, uh, there's kind of what I'm calling the salesman, the salesman. Uh, That's where the gospel is sold or billed as a product that you cannot live without. Never leave home without Jesus. It's sleek, it's slick, and it's designed to whip your appetite for Jesus. That's the salesman. Or how about this one? Uh, the gospel blitz. This is, is where you present the gospel as quickly as possible and then move on to the next person or house. In fact, I, I've even uh, used this method before in, in, uh, when I was younger. And then there, there's my personal favorite, um, probably because of my engineering background, uh, the formula. The formula. The whole entire universe operates on equations and formulas, so the gospel should too, right? Um, So this is where the gospel is presented in a step one plus step two plus step three equals salvation uh, manner. And then there's the most popular one for today, uh, in our world today, the digital media. The digital media. This is where the gospel advances through my fingers as I'm posting or blogging or tweeting. Um, And what's interesting about this method is it's going to be interesting to see how it, um, it morphs and changes now with the rise of online churches and digital churches. Now let's be sure about this. Let's make this this point um, uh, clear. God graciously uses methods to win people to Jesus. And in fact, many of us, uh, you and me, are are probably using some of these methods as we uh, try to advance the gospel. Um, However, today, my focus is going to be more on a mindset instead of a method. Uh, What if advancing the gospel was more about a mindset than a method? And and here's the mindset, here's the mindset. We advance the gospel by being a people engaging others 
with the gospel. I'll say it again. We advance the gospel by being a people engaging others with the gospel. So my goal for us today is to walk out encouraged that as we are engage, or as we are advancing the gospel, we simply have to make connections with people for the gospel. Acts 17 begins to show us what this mindset looks like, this mindset of an engaging with kind of people. And so our, our text this morning kind of has five primary sections. So uh, we're going to look at, at five traits of an engaging with people. How many traits? Five traits. Let's pray together and ask God to help us have some clarity on this. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would meet with us right now. You, we, you, have, you have been with us as we worshipped you in song, and now we want to worship you in your word. And, and so, Lord, would you bring clarity of thought and help us to understand this text for this morning. And Lord, would you help us to walk away convicted and encouraged at the same time. Thank you, Lord. All glory to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Acts 17, uh, verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me, if you would, please. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So as we saw last week, uh, Paul and his entourage left Philippi, and and now they pass through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they arrive in Thessalonica. Now you can see on the map behind me, Thessalonica was about 70 miles west of Philippi, so it was a good little jaunt. Um, And it was also known as the metropolis of Macedonia. So you can probably imagine it was a a fairly influential and prominent city in the region. In verse 2, it says, And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And so as was Paul's custom, he went into the synagogue on three different Sabbaths, and he did what? He reasoned with them. Now now this word um, has this idea of of engaging with them, of engaging with them. In other words, Paul was establishing a meaningful connection with them through conversation and interaction. What's interesting is is this is the first time this word actually shows up in the entire book of Acts. And it's mentioned three times explicitly in our text today. We'll get there. This is the first time. And one time implicitly, and then it also factors very prominently, prominently over the next eight chapters in Acts. Chris, why are you boring us with so many numbers about one word? It's because it helps us understand the mindset of a spirit-led, spirit-empowered people of God advancing the gospel. They do it by engaging with people. Engage with people. So we live in a culture today that's increasingly connected. Praise God for that. But at the same time, it's also increasingly disengaged. We're more connected today through technology, praise God. But we're also more disengaged than ever before. Christian philosopher Oz Guinness states it well. He says, everyone is now in the business of relentless self-promotion. Presenting themselves, explaining themselves, defending themselves, selling themselves, or sharing their inner thoughts and emotions as never before in human history. You see, we, we've replaced the ability to engage with the ability to argue our points. And Guinness goes on to say that spreading the gospel has become more about winning arguments than winning hearts. What's encouraging, though, here is we don't see any of this from Paul. We don't see him trying to win an argument. What do we see him doing? 
He's engaging with them in conversation. Now, this is not a courtroom drama scene playing out before us. Understand this. If Paul wanted that to happen, he could have argued them under the table because he was a lawyer. He knew how to do that, but he doesn't do that. Nor is this a, a formal debate like the political or apologetical ones that we see and hear about today. He's engaging with them. And it says here in verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. In other words, Paul's opening up scripture, and he's showing how the Old Testament predictions of a coming Messiah have been fulfilled fully and wholly by Jesus. That's what he's doing. And in verse 4 it says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Uh, persuaded. Persuaded has this idea of, of convincing or winning over. Convincing or winning over. And in fact, we could sum up all of Paul's activities and actions in these first verses with this one word, persuade. And this is the first trait of an engaging with people. A people engaging with persuade. They persuade. Notice I said persuade, not coerce. That's not what Paul's trying to do here. He's not trying to coerce them or manipulate them. Uh, The good news of Jesus Christ is winsome. And if we're anything but winsome, as we engage with others, then we're failing to demonstrate the winsomeness of the gospel. I think this leads to some natural questions. So, so as we engage with others for the sake of the gospel, are you, am I, persuasive? Are we winsome? Maybe I ask it this way. As you and I, within the church, engage one another, are we being winsome with one another? I'm just thinking back this week um, and looking, reflecting on the, past, my past years in the church and then also in working in industry with many skeptics. Um, I can remember some times I wasn't very winsome. I wasn't very winsome. Um, There's a big part of me that wishes I could go back and change that. And what's really cool from this text is that we see that some of the Jews were convinced. Some of the Jews were persuaded. Many Greeks were and quite a few of the leading women in the city. So some immediate gospel fruit from Paul being persuasive and winsome. However, in verse 5 it says, but the Jews, most likely this is the Jewish leaders, but the Jews were jealous. And, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, rabble, it's, if you're using ESV, that's a hard word. I, I think NIV and other translations probably have it better with marketplace. At least I know what that means. And taking some wicked men of the marketplace, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. We don't know much about Jason. Uh, He was a Jewish convert, most likely, and uh, Paul was staying with him. Um, Now let's pick up in in verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Turn the world upside down. Huh. What a coincidence. That's the name of our current sermon series. 
And, and also, it, it takes us back to our last sermon series in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Hey, the Gospel turns us inside out and upside down, and it turns the whole world inside out and upside down. Now, I want to pause here for just a second and camp here for a minute. What's interesting here is, if you think about it, God originally created a right-side-up world. Go look at Genesis 1 and 2. It's glorious and beautiful. God saw that it was very good. So it was right-side-up originally, but then um, a sin entered the world in, in Genesis chapter 3. And what did sin do? Sin perverted the goodness, and it flipped the world upside down. Flipped it upside down. So, so what the gospel was doing back in this time and now in our time is that it's taking an already upside down world, flipping it upside down, and then what does that leave? It's right side up. Glad you're tracking with me. But let me illustrate this and, and try to drive home this, this idea a little bit better. So when I, when I think of this, one of the things that comes to my mind is the show, uh, uh, TV show Stranger Things. By the way, this is not an endorsement of the show, so please be gentle with your emails. Um, I just want to grab this concept, uh, concept from it to help illustrate my point. So, uh, every, so the show's about uh, these scientists inadvertently open up a doorway to a, a parallel world. And, and so the show is really centered around some main characters in the show about how they, they interact as our world and the parallel world come together. And there's lots of evil that comes out of this parallel world. And so um, that's the premise of the show. And so, so the people in this show that are living in, the, uh, in, in kind of our world, if you will, the, the right side up world... Um, that, I think, is a good metaphor of a Genesis 1 and 2 kind of reality. It was right side up when God created it. Now, the characters begin then to enter into the parallel world. Um, by the way, what, are the, what do they call the parallel world? The upside down. You guys like the show. Uh, the upside down. Why? It's because the upside down world mirror, mirrors the right side up world. Only this upside-down world is cold, dark, dead, scary, and only wants to destroy people. And I think that's a good picture of our world that we live in today. We live in a cold, dark, dark, dead, scary world that wants to destroy us. So then as the characters then figure out how to leave the the upside-down and get back to the uh, right side up, well then I think that's a good picture of, of what the gospel is doing. Hey guys, listen. Jesus Christ is transforming this upside-down world into God's original creation. Praise the Lord. Let's pick up in verse uh, middle of verse 6. So the mob was shouting, These men who have turned the world upside-down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason, uh, it's not a bribe, it's more of a a city fine. Think of it that way. Um, So when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. I'll just make one more note uh, about this section. Engaging with people is risky. Yes, the gospel is winsome, And yes, we are called to be persuasive and winsome as we engage with others, but not everybody will take it that way. 
Not everybody will receive it that way. So we should expect opposition. We live in the upside down. It's okay. That's okay. So let's see what happens next. In verse 10 it says, The brothers and sisters in Christ immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Uh, Now Berea, as you can see on the map, is about 40 miles west of Thessalonica. And so Paul and Silas leave there and um, head to Berea, and they enter into the synagogue, as was their custom. Uh, It's not explicit here, but I think it's reasonable to assume that Paul was also engaging with the Jews here in the same manner that he did back in verse 2. Let's see how they respond. Now, verse 11, these Jews were more noble than those Jews in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Um, It says, these Jews in Berea are set in Start contrast with those Jews in Thessalonica. Why? It says these Jews were more noble. Not in pedigree, but they were more noble for another reason. Why is that? Well, for two reasons. And the text says, first reason, they received the word with eagerness. I, I kind of uh, liken it to be like they, they entered in. Paul had some things to say. He was engaging with them. And they were like, whew, tell us more. We want to hear more about this Jesus and the resurrection. They were on the edge of their seats kind of a thing. Kind of like how you guys are right now. (laughs) Secondly, they examined the scriptures daily. Examined the scriptures daily. This word examining means, uh, has this idea of engaging in careful study of a thought or a question. Careful thought, careful study of a thought or a question. And so examining, searching, thinking are all part of this this engaging um, aspect Paul's engaging, Paul's pondering with them. They're uh, engaging back by pondering his words carefully to see if what he said is true. In fact, this is the second trait of an engaging with people. Uh, People engaging with ponder. They ponder. As we engage with people, um, we need to be thinking very carefully. Um, Questions are okay. Questions are okay. Hey, a follower of Christ, um, if, if you've got questions about your faith and, and maybe even some doubts about your faith, let's ponder them together. Questions are okay. Ask them. Let's carefully study. Let's carefully think on them together. I'll say it this way also. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ and, and you have uh, doubts and questions about the validity of the Christian faith, let's ponder them together. Let's do it together. Questions are okay. And we need to have ears to hear and we need to listen. We need to listen. Hey, here's a thought. What if we were a people who turned first to God's word for all matters of life and godliness? What if we were a people in a church like that? What if that's what characterized us primarily here at Harvest? Turning first to God's word for all matters of life and godliness. It would would mean then that we would start to filter everything we see and hear through the lens of Scripture. So then that would mean we could answer these questions. How how do we know if what our culture says uh, or believes is true? And it says a lot these days. We ponder the Scriptures. How do we know if what our parents or our teachers or professors say is true? 
We ponder the scriptures. Or, or how do we know if what politicians, our pastors, or even other religions say is true? Ponder the scriptures. Examine them. Think carefully through them. Try to discern what's true and what is false. Look at the response here, if you would, please. Verse 12. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So, more immediate gospel fruit. And praise the Lord for that. However, look at verse 13. (laughs) But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So, so the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica were pretty determined to cause Paul pain and suffering because they, uh, they walked 40 miles one way just to stir up the town of Berea. And so uh, Paul is conducted um, out of and away from uh, Berea, and um, he ends up, uh, by, by ship, he ends up at Athens. And Timothy and Silas, um, he asks for them to come with him. And so as Paul is waiting for them to arrive, what does he do? Well, look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Uh, provoked. Provoked. It has this idea of being stirred up, being upset, um, being disturbed, maybe even angry. So in one sense, Paul is grieved over the people who are lost in their idolatry. They're worshiping figments of their imagination. He's grieved over that. In another sense, he's angry at the idolatry itself. It was robbing God of his glory, and the living God, the true God, was not being worshipped. So how does he respond? How does he respond? Well, let's look together at verse 17. So, he went to Facebook and posted a lengthy diatribe calling the people heartless, useless, worthless, idiotic, thick-headed nincompoops. (laughs) Is that what he does? No. What does it say? Verse 17. So, He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who, uh, with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean uh, and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Well, it says here, he reasoned with. Uh, This is is the the second time we see this word. It's the same one from verse 2. He was engaging with people. Who was he engaging with? Well, he, he was engaging first in the, in the synagogue. So think of that kind of like the religious experts. Uh, he was engaging in the marketplace with the commoners and, and uh, businessmen and women. And then he was engaging with the Greek philosophers or the academic experts, if you will. Here's, this is important, though. He did it with reason, respect, and tact. He didn't attack them. He didn't call them names. He didn't condescend to them. See, his provocation did move him to action. 
but he did it in a manner of love. And yet, how often is it that we see Christians spewing vitriol toward unbelievers? Or how often have we seen Christians spewing vitriol at other Christians? And again, to bring it home, how many times have I and you and we been guilty of that? Daryl Bach sums it up well. He says, sometimes we Christians are so angry at the state of our society that all that comes through is the anger and not the love we have for our neighbor in need. Paul knows how to confront, but does so honestly and graciously. Both message and tone are important in sharing the gospel. You might think about writing that last sentence down. Message and tone are important in sharing the gospel. See, we tend to to view provocation negatively. Um, And probably uh, because when we are provoked, it usually leads to some sinful behavior or sinful responses on our part. But what's encouraging here is that we see Scripture is using provocation in a positive way. And provocation should always move us to engaging with others in a manner of love, never in a manner of anger. And so another interesting thing about this is the Athenians were also provoked in their spirits. Uh, look with me, if you will, in the middle of verse 18. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Um, the Areopagus was this uh, council of aristocrats. Think of them kind of like the Supreme Court. Um, so they were the intellectual gurus. Uh, and so, so the, the people that he was engaging with wanted, him, wanted Paul to come before the council and present what he had been talking about with them. They had never heard of Jesus in the resurrection. And Paul's provocation here led to loving engagement, which in turn provoked the Athenians into a spirit of curiosity. They were curious about what they were hearing. They were like, Paul, tell us more. This is the third trait. A people engaging with provoke. They provoke. So Chris, what does it look like for us to provoke, to attract, to draw people rather than repel them? Um, Comedian and magician uh, Penn Gillette from the group Penn and Teller um, tells a story uh, about a man who came up to him after a show one time. um, And he was, uh, Gillette was signing autographs. The man came up to him and introduced him and um, um, he said it was a big bear of a man, and, and, and the reason that stood out to Gillette was because of what happened, what, the, what words came out of his mouth next. He genuinely, he said, complimented Gillette on the show. He was kind, he was gentle, he listened, he engaged. And then he, 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 Gillette said he reaches into his pocket, the man does, and he, he pulls out a, a New Testament Bible. Now, 
understand, if you don't know who Penn Jillette is, he is a, a committed atheist. And so the man says, sir, I brought this for you. I'm not crazy. I am a Christian. And I would like for you to have this. I wrote a note to you personally inside the Bible. And I'd like you to have it. Because I'd like to share the good news of Jesus with you. Uh, Pendulette was stunned. Absolutely floored. He was astonished, he says. And he said he had an immediate respect for the man. Immediately. Because the man was kind. The man was genuine. The man was uh, someone that, that Gillette had a different picture of a Christian for. This man was, was counter that. And the man said, I just wanted to let you know, last thing. I'll just be praying that you come to see and know Jesus. And Gillette wasn't compelled to get on his knees and repent in that moment, but it caused him pause. It caused him to stop and think, huh, here's a man who is genuinely trying to win me over for what he believes. I can respect that. He's doing it kindly and friendly. I respect that man. And, and the last words that, that Gillette says about the man is this. He says, I still think all religion is bad, but at least this man walked away. I knew that this was a very, very, very good man. That's provocation. That's stirring up. And when we act and respond and speak in ways that are countercultural, people notice. People notice. People see these things. Many of them are stirred up in their spirits. Some are pulled in. Some are attracted by what they see and they want to converse about it more. Hey, if unbelievers must be repulsed, let's allow the gospel to offend them and not the manner in which we deliver it. So, a, a people engaging with, persuade, ponder, provoke, and here's the fourth trait. They proclaim. They proclaim. Uh, what is it that they proclaim? Well, uh, we're about to see what Paul proclaims, so let, let's wait and hold off and answer that after we get through what we see Paul proclaiming here. Okay, so let me set this up for us. They take Paul before the Areopagus. It's a big area, and standing before him is the Supreme Court in, um, in Athens. He's got people all around him, and all of them want to hear more about this Jesus and the resurrection. So what does Paul do next? What does Paul say with such an audience? This is so cool. Let's read this together in its entirety. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted times or periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what does an engaging with people proclaim to others? They proclaim the good news of Jesus, the gospel. That's the greatest need all of us have in this world. It's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're engaging with people but we never get to a place where we're proclaiming this good news of Jesus, then we're not really loving them like Christ loves them. And notice throughout our text, every time Paul engages, he proclaims the gospel. He, he did that in verse 3, he did that in verse 10, he did it in verse 18, and now here he is doing it again. But Chris, I can't do what Paul just did. <laughs> I'm not that eloquent. I'm not that creative or even that polished. That's okay. Neither am I. And honestly, neither is Paul usually. You have to understand, this is a unique time, a unique occasion, a unique opportunity. But Paul generally didn't proclaim it like this, this polished. What did he say in 1 Corinthians 2? He said, I did not come before you with lofty speech and wisdom. I have decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he says, I came to you in much fear and trembling. I resonate with that. So then, Chris, what do I do if I don't have to be like what we just read? Well, you share with people your God at work story. If you have one. Make God the hero of your story. By the way, you can check this later. Uh, Paul made God the hero of this cosmos in his sermon. You can share with people the reason for the hope that is in you. Start there. That's proclaiming the gospel. That's proclaiming it. Well, let's look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Hey, there is always a response to the proclamation of the gospel. There's always a response. And so what we see happening here is that some mocked, some found the resurrection to be too foolish to ever believe and accept. And others said, uh, we're curious, we want to hear more. Please tell us more. And still others we see here accepted the gospel and believed. 
I'll just note this. The gospel is winsome, but the gospel alone does not engender faith. Only the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person produces saving faith in the gospel. And I don't know about you, but this is a massive relief to me. Because it means I don't have to save you guys. I don't have to save my neighbors. You don't have to save your neighbors or your colleagues. You don't have to save your kids. We proclaim the gospel. And the Holy Spirit does the work. So let me ask this question. When you hear the good news of Jesus, how are you responding? Do you respond with worship? Do you respond with rejection? Intrigue? I'm praying and have been all week that you respond with worship. Now here's the last trait. A people engaging with pause. They pause. Look at chapter 18, verse 1, please. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because of Claudius, uh, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he, he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade more, uh, persuade Jews and Greeks. Interestingly, the story of, of Paul in Athens just ends abruptly. We don't know if he ever went back to the Areopagus. Uh, we get the sense that it didn't, he didn't stay for very long. Um, and so he, he goes on to, to Corinth, and he finds Aquila and Priscilla, who are uh, Jewish converts, and he stays with them because they all have the same uh, tent-making trade. And then, by the way, what does he do in his spare time? Does what he always does. As is his custom, he reasoned in the synagogue. Third time, same word. He engaged with them. But we do get the sense here that Paul stays in Corinth a lot longer. In fact, if you jump down to verse 11, it says, and he stayed a year and six months. So Paul wasn't in a hurry. He wasn't trying to pad his ministry numbers. He took his time. He paused to engage with them. Friends, engaging with people takes time. And if people feel like we're just trying to deliver um, only trying to deliver the gospel with a clever sales pitch or gospel blitz or formula, then they're not going to feel loved. But if we pause to engage with them, spend time with them, interact with them, then as we're sharing the gospel with them, they're going to at least know that they're loved. So five traits of a people engaging with. They persuade, they ponder, provoke, proclaim, and pause. Questions. Which one of these traits comes easy for you? Or which one is more difficult for you? Which one's harder? I don't know. Maybe as you leave today and this week, maybe you pick out one of these five traits and you work on it. I'll tell you mine. Mine is pause. Mine's pause. Um, I'm not trying to... Trying to pad my ministry numbers and move on to the next church or the next people group. That's not it. Um, but sometimes I'm just not very good with pausing, engaging with, in a relationship type of way. So think about picking one for yourself. 
and I don't know, maybe this week you share that with your small group. Maybe that can become a topic of conversation in your small group this week. A spirit-led, spirit-empowered people advancing for the sake of the gospel have an engaging with mindset. So friends, this morning, let's walk away encouraged with the mindset that God just wants us to connect with other people for the gospel. We get to engage people in this upside-down world with the right-side-up, glorious, living hope of Jesus Christ. We get to uh, participate in this beautiful work God is doing as he transforms the world. And it's a calling worthy of gladly spending and being spent for their souls. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word and the opportunity that you have given us, you have ordained upon us to, to be able to, to read it and, and try to comprehend it and to think deeply on it, Lord. We are so grateful and so thankful that you have not left us ill-equipped to be obedient to your calling in our lives. You have given us the Holy Spirit, and so thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling us as believers. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for, for calling us to be in engaging with people. And thank you, Jesus, we have such a beautiful, wonderful message to engage others with. We love you, O oh Lord. And now as we sing, Lord, would we respond to this out of worship and not a, a rejection and not, a, and not out of intrigue, but Lord, that we would be drawn, that we would be pulled in by your beauty and your glory and ultimately your, your unfailing faithfulness and love that you've bestowed upon us. Thank you, God, for your grace. Hallelujah. In Christ's name.